There's another podcast you should be listening to, TED Health, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Join host Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter as she introduces you to leading health experts and breaks down the health questions you didn't know you had. Learn more about the way your body works and the newest insights changing the medical world, like what a smart bra means for better heart health, three ways to prepare for the next pandemic, and how we can all live healthier lives. Find TED Health wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Yeah, this is great. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to White Coat Blackheart. Long before I became a physician, I was an NHL hockey fan. This week, I get to indulge my passion for both and meet a hero. They're concerned about the height differential. Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> you would have been the tallest person in your class. Yeah. Today, Dr. David Mulder is six foot five and a giant in so many other ways. Let the record show that I'm short. As team physician to the Montreal Canadiens, Mulder stitched up countless players through nine Stanley Cups. But he didn't just witness NHL hockey, he helped make it safer. When he wasn't at the Montreal Forum or the Bell Centre, he was saving lives as a chest surgeon here at the Montreal General Hospital. And when he wasn't doing that, he was helping modernize trauma care in Quebec. This week, he retires from his post as team doctor with the Canadians. Our conversation is one hell of an exit interview. That works. Ça marche. Okay. Hi, my name is uh, Dave Mulder. I'm a thoracic surgeon at the Montreal General Hospital, and I've been doing it since 1963. You ended up with the Montreal Canadians in 1969? But you started with the Junior Canadians in 1963. That's a long, long time. Um, Dr. David Mulder, welcome to White Coat Black Art. Thank you. You're a thoracic surgeon. So how did you come to being a physician for a hockey team? So I was lucky one day. I met Dr. Kinnear. That was in September of 63. And I was a rookie uh, general surgeon. And he said, I've just taken over care for the Montreal Canadiens. And I have to some, need somebody to help me look after the Montreal Junior Canadiens. And in those days, they met, they played every Sunday at the old forum. The place was sold out. It was uh, no helmets, no mask, lots of lacerations. So it was a, a tyro surgeon's delight. Uh, we often so, sutured up ma- as many as 10 or 12 lacerations in a game. So that's how I got started. And uh, so I went to the, after the juniors, I went to the Voyageurs. They were the American League team. And then after that, in 1969, he accepted me to be the assistant to Dr. Kinnear, looking after the big team. So he actually took you from Junior A to, uh, to the American Hockey League to uh, just, like, just like a hockey player. Um, you, you've already mentioned um, the lack of safety equipment. Like what, what safety equipment existed at, at that time when you started out? I, I would say none. They wore no helmets, no masks, no visors. Uh, they had shin pads and shoulder pads, and uh, I think those are the basics. You look at the photos of uh, goalies that uh, played then, back then, so Gump Worsley and, uh, and Terry Sawchuk, Glenn Hall, Johnny Bauer, the ones who played without a mask. You see the cuts, yeah. and you said you sewed up a lot of those cuts? Yeah. 
for sure, many. That, that was our common thing. At, at the, We had a clinic at the old farm right off the ice surface, and so we sewed them up right away and got them back on the ice. Which was probably the value in having a thoracic surgeon slick with, uh, with sutures and a needle driver. You know, some of the uh, junior Canadians, when I see them now, they say, Doc, you were practicing on us, and I guess that's true. You made it to the big leagues. You you moved up to the NHL with uh, with the Habs, with the Montreal Canadiens in 1969. What did you see? What were your marching orders? What did you see as as your job at that time? To get the players back on the ice as quickly as possible. And then, of course, you've got the prime rule of uh, of the Hippocratic Oath, which is to do no harm. Exactly. Did the two ever come into conflict with one another? I, I think probably, but. Uh, you know, my best teacher in this uh, in this whole effort was uh, my idol, Jean Beliveau. Yeah, yeah, and he he uh, he said to me, you know, always remember when you're treating a patient, the goal is to do what's best for the patient. He and told you that. He told me that, and he as a rookie, and he said, ignore the press, ignore management, and ignore the fans, and do what's best for the player. Probably the single most important bit of advice I ever received. And you got it early. Yeah, in my f- early years. How else did, did uh, Jean Beliveau help you get along with the players on the team? Well, he was, uh, he, he was always very kind to me and introduced me to the players. And uh, I think that maybe the, most, the best example of how he influenced me was uh, on one occasion, John Ferguson had uh, been in a fight and knocked out. And it was probably when we were becoming more aware of concussions. So I said to John Ferguson, you've got to sit, sit the rest of the game out. And he started uh, objecting, I would say, and, and uh, got pretty violent. And Beliveau came along and said, don't fight with him, Doc. And I said, okay, so you talk. So he said, let me handle it. So he taught me an important lesson. He put him in the clinic and locked the door, and then the game went on. And uh, so he said, don't have a confrontation. Good advice. Probably another really good uh, piece of advice. Um, was it that your gut told you he shouldn't come back? There wasn't a lot of science to concussions back then. No, well, it was probably that was a time where we were beginning to we'd had some warnings about concussions, and we were getting concerned about concussions. No question. A long time ago, when I was young and innocent, I suggested that the uh, McGill University give Jean Beliveau an honorary degree. And they, they didn't laugh me out of the room, but almost. I, but I'd written a letter, and so time went by, five or ten years, I guess, and a new Miguel principal, Heather Monroe Bloom, called, and she said, I found this old letter here suggesting that Jean Bellevaux be a, given an honorary degree. She said, do you still hold by it? And I said, I certainly do. And so it was the, one of the most amazing experiences in my life that we, he, he was so impressed by it. Their big, you know what their biggest worry was? That he wouldn't be able to give a good address to the graduates. Uh, he gave a 10-minute address, which, you know, stunned them. And you know what he talked about is leadership and team player. And it was sensational. And so I've never forgotten it. You had to deal in your capacity as team doctor uh, with the aftermath of some incredibly brutal Injuries, and I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm thinking about about 2011 when Zdeno Chara hit uh, Max Pacioretty into a metal stanchion. Zone. Oh, 
Patch already is down face first as Chara angled him, and Patch already was lined up against the center glass between the two benches. Yes, and yeah, we took him off the ice, and uh, he uh, he he sustained injuries to uh, to the head and brain, and but and more importantly, had fractures of his cervical spine. Right, Max Pacioretty is being uh, mobilized now after they have strapped him to the backboard. The important thing about my relationship with the team is that it was based at the Montreal General Hospital, and it's a trauma center. It's very close, and if you look at the history, proximity to the hospital is a big factor, and so that saved uh, things that day. Like, as, as a team doctor, would you have your eyes on the ice at all times? What would you be looking no, at? No, we, were, we sit right behind the bench. Uh, as a result of uh, previous injuries, the, the NHL has mandated now that the doc be 25 to 50 feet from the clinic. And so the injury happened right in front of us. And at that time, the stanchions were square and metal, and now they're rounded and protected. So all of that is a result of the Pacioretty incident. You must have wondered if he'd ever play again. I did, and uh, and uh, the interesting thing that his mom and dad were at that game, and uh, so you know we met them later on in the uh, waiting room outside after we dealt with them in the emergency room and uh, talked things over with them. And lo and behold, a, a distant aunt had been a nurse at the MGH, and uh, so there was an immediate connection. And I think that kind of relationship is uh, critical and is key, and I'm sure led to the fact that. After he got better, Max raised the funding to develop, to uh, uh, buy us a new MRI, uh, several million dollars. He would have had an MRI that night? Yes. Certainly an unforgettable moment, an unforgettable injury. Uh, happened in January uh, 2000. Trent McCleary blocks the slap shot, and the puck makes a direct hit on McCleary's neck. The Canadians were playing the Philadelphia Flyers, and, and Trent McCleary takes a puck to the throat at very high speed. Did you see it when it happened? Yeah, no, I, we saw it. We were in the same seats, and it was right directly across from me. You know, they called us to come on the ice, but by the time we were, we were just opening the gate, and they had brought him over to the uh, edge of the ice surface, and then he sort of collapsed in our arms, and we took him into the emergency clinic where we tried to control an airway. And uh, we originally thought we might need to put a, uh, do a cricothyroid or put a needle in his neck, but using uh, ATLS techniques of... Advanced Trauma Life Support, which is an algorithmic kind of standardized approach to, to managing trauma, trauma patients. Maybe the most encouraging sound I ever heard was when I did the jaw thrust and I heard a squeaky uh, breath. A Strider. We call it strider when they yeah. so so that that's so you, you actually did a jaw thrust you well, did a we, jaw lift is it probably reduced the fracture of the larynx mm-hmm. and so then we were what to do should we try and do a tracheostomy there and we made the decision I had another surgeon who came out of the crowd to help me and we decided we'd go to the Montreal General McClary who came within minutes of dying was transported to a Montreal hospital where so we phoned the hospital. We said, we aren't going to stop in the emergency department. We said, we're going right to the OR. And the guys who were in the clinic at the at the Bell Center phoned ahead. And then we could breathe a little easier. And then we went on and did a tracheostomy. And then he had a laryngeal reconstruction. Uh, one of the ear, nose, and throat surgeons reconstructed his larynx the next day. 
Well, the 27-year-old was said to be awake and alert and even scribbled a note to his teammates saying he's, quote, doing great. Was that your closest brush with death? No question. It was, uh, was life-threatening. And uh, fortunately, we'd, ha we'd had, we do simulations all the time. We'd had practice in, uh, in the ABCs, as you know, of trauma. And uh, that saved our lives that day. Let's give credit to uh, to your colleague who came down from the stands to assist you, Dr. David... David uh, Fleischer. David Fleischer, yeah. yeah, a general surgeon. General surgeon, and uh, we, we'd been colleagues for, in trauma for years and years, so uh, uh, he knew the trouble we were in, but you have to remember that element of luck. It was Super Bowl Sunday. It was a light snow. There was no traffic. Everybody's watching the football game. And so we were at the general in short, shorter time than I could imagine. And the, the OR was quiet. The anesthetist, he was probably watching the football game too. He was readily available. We got the, had the phone call alert. So he was there when we got off the elevator. The, you know, I'm thinking about the awesome decision that you just described making, which, which was not doing an, a, an emergency airway at the, at the arena, but going lights and sirens to the hospital. That could have gone the other way. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we, we still talk about it. We have the equipment to do a cricothyroid, which is a little easier than a trach. But uh, we have the equipment to do both there, but it's, a, it's in the hockey arena. It uh, doesn't have all the facilities that are... Most of all, it doesn't have an anesthesiologist. And uh, Trent recovered. Flash forward to September of that year when he's come back to training camp, I guess against a lot of odds, describe the moment you had to sit Trent down and tell him you were pulling his medical clearance. Well, it was, uh, I think it was a joint decision, but it was, uh, he'd worked hard all summer to get, his, to get into shape like all players do, and uh, he actually played the first game, or part of the first game, but he had no uh, respiratory reserve. He was short of breath. He he couldn't play thirty seconds even shift. So uh, after the game, he we sat down and talked and said, "This isn't going to work. This is and and I don't and we had previous uh, we'd done pulmonary function tests and we'd done had an otolaryngologist seen him and we knew it was borderline, and so it wasn't a shock to him that we were going to." that we told him we, could, we couldn't uh, let him play any further. How many times have you had to do that? Oh, quite a few. Uh, sometimes it's just not playing for a game. Uh, I remember Chris Nyland in the, when we were winning the uh, Stanley Cup in Calgary, and he had a sprained, bad sprained ankle. And I didn't let him play. And, uh, I mean, again, it was almost came to fisticuffs. He was so keen to play. And that's a hard thing. That's a really, because uh, as a physician, you want to get them back as soon as you can. How did Trent's injury lead to changes in medical care in the NHL? Well, uh, that, that was uh, uh, maybe one of the most important things because uh, the NHL made it mandatory that the doctor be sitting 25 to 50 feet from the clinic. So that automatically meant you're right behind the bench. And it's two seats that they can't sell. It's, uh, but it's uh, everybody agreed on the importance, and it uh, it's it's now the way it is. It's throughout the league. So his injury has maybe saved many lives since. We'll be right back. I'm Keith MacArthur. 
Unlocking Bryson's Brain is a podcast about my son, Hi, <gasps> the rare disease that keeps him from walking or talking. I mean, Bryson's perfect, but his life is really hard. And our family's search for a cure. Oh my gosh, maybe science is ready for this. It's part memoir, part medical mystery. We can do just about anything. Modifying DNA. My heart in my throat. Cure is controversial. Unlocking Bryson's Brain. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to White Coat Black Art. This week, a conversation with behind-the-scenes hockey legend, Dr. David Mulder. He's retiring after more than half a century as the Montreal Canadiens' team doctor. Off the ice, he helped modernize how doctors and hospitals in Quebec respond to patients involved in car collisions and other traumas, saving countless lives. Mulder also played a significant role in another kind of trauma. Two that took place at Ecole Polytechnique in 1989 and at Dawson College in 2006. I'm going to take a step away from hockey for a second. Um, As an emergency physician myself, I can't kind of let you go without asking you um, uh, something else. You know, you're part of NHL history, but you're also part of Montreal history. Uh, I understand you treated victims of both the Ecole Polytechnique massacre in 1989 and and the shooting in in 2006. Most Canadians know a lot about both as as historical events, but you have a unique insider perspective that almost none of us have. Can can you share some of that? It was uh, I remember them both vividly, and uh, well, with Ecole Polytechnique, we had many, many uh, penetrating injuries reached the hospital at the same time. Fourteen students dead, all women. Another dozen people were hurt, caught in a rampage that witnesses called a human hunt, with the gunman yelling, I want women. I took the first patient to the operating room, and and, uh, she had a penetrating injury to her bowel, and we resected the bowel, and and then we operated all evening that night, uh, I think six to eight hours, with five or six surgeons involved. It was a heroic uh, thing. That horrible event led to changes. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, now uh, police go in right away. If there's a a known shooter here, the police all stayed outside. And and I think at that time that was a conventional wisdom that they not go in for fear of uh, getting shot themselves and so on. Now they go in and just and at Dawson they disarm the shooter right away. Ten thousand students attend this English language college that uh, brings back memories for so many of us of the Ecole Polytechnic massacre. This is eerily uh, familiar. We are hearing, however, that there is one distinct difference in this case, and that there are at least two gunmen, both dead, one neutralized by police, one who took his own life. A good lesson learned. Uh, A lesson that apparently still needs to be learned in the United States. Yes, yes. uh, They don't always go in. Uh, They're supposed to, but uh, we know. The last one where in Texas where it really bothered me. I mean, we, they probably lost lives because of it. And that gets at the bigger problem. We need to do something about uh, gun control. What more needs to happen for that to change? No one needs an automatic, uh, you know, a semi-automatic or an automatic uh, wartime weapon. You know, these assault rifles are, we don't need them for hunting or 
And I think, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm. I know how to handle a gun better than probably anybody. And farmers can keep their guns. They're not going to shoot anybody. And so, I mean, I think we, we, just, we need to have some common sense gun policy. The sooner the better. You've had a trauma center named after you? Uh, here at the Montreal General Hospital where you work. You were one of the forces helping to restructure trauma care in Quebec. What did you do? Well, that's a, that's a good question. All my life I've been involved with trauma, and so I became a member of the American Association for Trauma Surgery. The thing I learned about in the United States was that they developed the concept of trauma centers, where instead of going to the nearest hospital, you went to a hospital that could deal with major trauma. And uh, Canada had no, had none of this. I looked at uh, mortality in Quebec, and I found that for equivalent injury, the mortality in Quebec was 50% compared to the United States, 7 or 8%. So I, I went to the then Minister of Health with a colleague from the U.S., who is very well respected for trauma, and a colleague from our, uh, one of our French hospitals, and we met with uh, Mark Ivancote, uh, who was the Minister of Health then. The night before our meeting, a cabinet minister rolled his car and had a seatbelt on and had a seatbelt laceration of the neck and died in the ditch. And uh, so we, uh, we brought that. To the, he understood right away what we were talking about. And we talked about how many trauma centers there should be in Quebec and so he bought the idea, and, and you can't imagine how quickly it was uh, was introduced. And uh, I think it was five or six or seven years later, the mortality in Quebec had gone from 50% to down to 10%, and is now probably below 8%, probably at 6% in Quebec. Quebec has now got a good reputation in terms with trauma centers in Montreal, Sherbrooke, and Quebec City. It's been, a, a, in terms of healthcare prevention, it's been monumental, and I still have one thing that hasn't been done, and it bothers. I can't sleep over it. Did you know that Quebec is the only province in Canada that doesn't have a helicopter system for medical evacuation? And so that's my uh, that's my project now. We're trying to get, uh, and maybe I'm not haven't been a good salesman, but it, we we haven't succeeded yet. You would think that the results would speak for themselves. Well, look at the results in Saskatchewan for the, with the Humboldt Bronco tragedy where many were killed on the roadside, but three helicopters at the roadside taking them to Saskatoon and Regina. We can't do that. Think of the movie star who was at Tremblant had a... Natasha Richardson. Yes. I was thinking of her as you were talking about and that. And if she'd had a helicopter and been transported to a level one trauma center, her life would have been saved. You mentioned briefly concussions, and I want to get back to that. Um, how has the response to concussions changed over time with the Canadians? Oh, I think it's changed dramatically from, for instance, 63 to now. It's, uh, now the equipment has improved. The uh, you know, hockey ruling has improved. The medical care is better. Imaging is so much better. Uh, you know, we, we can get a, I can get someone over here and do a CT scan and 10 or 15 minutes from the arena. Teaching is better. There's a much more conservative attitude. You know, the, the saying, if in doubt, set them out, now takes over. So there's never any, and management don't question it anymore. 
So we've made progress. We're not there yet. Uh, I guess what I would like to see is that fighting was uh, was out of question or was uh, disallowed. But that's not a very popular thought. My my view is that uh, the goal of a fight is to produce a concussion. It's to put an it's it's to create a brain injury. A lot of people watching the game don't understand that it's not striking your head on the ice that causes concussions. It's 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 more often than not it's fights. That's right. It's and often it's something simple as a check. Uh, fights certainly, but uh, I don't think people realize that if you have two two hundred pound guys going at a rapid rate and they collide with each other, the uh, the movement, the jostling of the brain is very significant. We've talked about uh, players' injuries on the ice. You've cared, though, for them through their illnesses off the ice as well. What would you say has been your most emotional experience with a player? The most serious illness I ever treated uh, in a player was Sako Koivo, who had a uh, type of lymphoma, getting him back on the ice at the end of the season. The day we got him back on the ice and he got a a long-standing ovation was maybe the, perhaps the most emo- emotional experience and most uh, satisfying experience I've had as a team physician. Well, the ovation continued through the anthem. Now we're getting to hockey. Not yet. You know, the whole thing started with training camp. Think of the circumstances. It was the day of 9-11 in New York, and we were all overwhelmed with uh, watching the TV, and Sacco came in, he'd... He said he'd eaten some bad food on the plane coming over, and he had a pain in his abdomen. We, uh, did a, we did an ultrasound of his abdomen. He had a lot of fluid in the pelvis, and he was, had peritoneal tenderness, and, uh, but he had little implants on the small bowel. And we all, uh, you know, the radiologist said, this is metastatic carcinoma. And uh, so we wanted to send the tissue away. No one would fly anything anywhere because of the 9-11. So we went, we finally got one, uh, uh, sections to the U.S. and to London, England, and everybody agreed on a chemotherapy regime. And uh, he was uh, a, a warrior in terms of the treatment, his tough treatment. He had lost all his hair, and he uh, he had chemo and radiation. And he made it back. <clears throat> and he made it back as a player, and he made it back. And uh, and we were we had the good fortune to go over to Turco to his hometown and attend his wedding which was an incredible experience. It must have been an emotional experience. It was. We were, and especially to meet his parents, his grandmother, and uh, his whole family. It was really very special. You were the team doctor when the Habs last won the Stanley Cup, Canada's last Stanley Cup in 1993. What was that like? Oh, that was, uh, well, I've had nine Stanley Cups, so that was my last. And now a 24th Stanley Cup banner will hang from the rafters of the famous forum in Montreal. The Canadians win the Stanley Cup. Probably one of the most exciting because, uh, you know, there were so many overtime games. Uh, there were, uh, you know, the stick measurement incident. It's a two-minute penalty to L.A. if it's uh, illegal, and it's a two-minute penalty to Montreal if it's fair. And Marty McSorley, if he uses an illegal stick, which he did... Uh, they, they measured his stick and, and got a penalty and we got a, a goal and the, just everything about it was very exciting. You've been practicing for 60 years. What's one guiding principle that has been with you all of that time? 
I guess John Belleville's advice. Always do the what's best for the player. And that works for patients too. Always do what's best for the patient. That goes back to Hippocrates. Sometimes you need a backbone for that because right. because what's best for the patient might not be might not be apparent as being best for the patient. Right, and might not be appealing to the management. You're getting the the accolades right now as you as you uh, uh, venture into retirement, but the team is always important. Uh, the team around you, absolutely, and and nothing I could have done was uh, could have been done without the team. The team in the rink, we always have a team of six or eight docs at the rink. But maybe more importantly, I have the ability to to call on anybody at the MGH or McGill University to solve any kind of problem that I've encountered. But uh, maybe the biggest lesson I've learned from playing team sports, I played hockey myself, and from looking after the Montreal Canadiens, is that I treat every operation now as a team sport. We have an anesthesiologist. We have a circulating nurse. We have, uh, and we, and nothing gets done well until unless we have the whole team on side. So, there's nothing more important than the team concept. It's a great way to end our conversation. Uh, congratulations on your career. On and and uh, I wish you all the best in your retirement. And I'm sure you will continue to be a hockey fan. I will for sure. I I still enjoy watching. I'm going to watch the game tonight. Thank you for speaking with me. Oh, pleasure. Good to speak to a doctor. <laughs> doctor to doctor. Before I left, Dr. Mulder took me to the trauma center at Montreal General Hospital that now proudly bears his name. That's our show this week. Our email address is whitecoat at cbc.ca. If you like this episode, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Make sure to check out our exclusive podcast interview with Trent McCleary about what that life-saving night back in 2000 was like for him. This edition was produced by Jennifer Warren and our senior producer, Colleen Ross, with help from Samir Chabra. Our digital producer this week is Adam Killick. Our web writer is Mohamed Rashini. Special thanks this week to Susan McKenzie and colleagues at CBC Montreal. That's medicine from my side of the gurney and the rink, at least for this week. I'm Brian Goldman. See you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.